Talk Radio. night in Georgia. We're uh, actually we cleared off today, but we've been through what looked like northern plains weather for the last three days, and almost scared me a little bit there. And uh, but we're coming out of it, so that's always a good thing. Tonight we have Peggy Dupree and Betty Gosnell back with us, and joining us will be Paris Golick. And we're going to be talking about DCF. We're going to be talking about how they operate, what they do is everybody knows this bunch, whether I don't care where you're at, it's just as corrupt as they come. And they are known um, as the biggest child trafficking organization on the face of the earth. Uh, More children who end up being trafficked come out of the foster care DCF system and a lot of them don't survive the ride. But this goes on. There's a lot of money in this, lots of money in this. And tonight we've got a guest coming on who has battled them, won, and is now in a battle again because now they're after the settlement. Imagine that. Anyway, um, there there is so much going on. I don't even know where to start here tonight. Uh, there is so much happening on many fronts, and... You've got to get up, people. You've got to get up. You've got to stand up. You've got to be counted. You cannot sit there complacent any longer. And we keep talking about these wars in this country doing this and this country. And we have gone to war with countries that didn't do a damn thing to us. And we have killed their people, torn their countries up, and they tell us they are our enemies. And I keep wondering, with all the going on, you know, you can launch wars in various ways, but it seems to me... Our government, both state and federal, has launched a war against the people and the families in this country. And I think it's them we need to focus on instead of some boogeyman over in some other country. I mean, I just that's just the way I see it. We're putting a lot of effort into places and things that have no bearing on us. And while all this is going on, our families are being attacked. In probate courts, we have people kidnapped, isolated. Uh, held in undisclosed locations, starved, abused, neglected, and robbed blind, while our senators and representatives, our governors, and the president, and this includes several past administrations, sit there and do nothing or bring out bills that are so useless, it's absolutely an insult to the public that they were even presented. They do nothing to stop or throttle the system that's in place, absolutely nothing. And if I hear one more supposed advocate jump up and say, well, I'll take what I can get, again, as I've said many times, you got nothing. Are you happy with that? Because I'm not. Anyway, our guest tonight, 
Like you say, it's Peggy Dupree and Betty Gosnell. Girls, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marty. Uh, waiting for Paris to come on, but what we'd like to do is say that before we start talking, you know, we're going to be going to Congress, and Paris is going to be litigating her case as long as along with Betty and me, and we need to give you a notice to preserve documents, electronically stored information. This is basically in case the state a prosecutor tries to take your information that you record, Marty, and tries to dismiss uh-huh. cases. They do that all the time. So mm-hmm. we're giving a notice to, yep. if the litigation holds so they can't use any information that we share with you tonight to protect Paris okay. tonight. She's going to give us a okay. brief story, what happened to her daughter, uh, uh, John Doe, we're, we're doing Mrs. John Doe because the child is a victim, so we can't say the child's name okay. on the show tonight. She's going to give us a brief description, then we're going to go over how uh, DCF has legally taken over the guardianship. And a lot of people would say, why are we even talking about DCF? It's very important for people to understand. You can have your child taken away, with, away from you without even abusing the child, neglecting, exploiting for money settlements. So we wanted Paris to come on right. and talk shortly about her show, about her about her story, excuse me. And then we're going to go into yeah, how DCF right. has taken the money into a trust settlement. So, Paris, are you on? No, no. I need to know um, the the area code she's calling from, if possible. Paris is trying to go on the show. Say what? I think she's calling in. Okay, can you tell her? Um, okay. Okay, she's still be calling me. in shortly then. Okay. All right. You know what I hear about these cases, Peggy, and um, tell her to hit number one, which she does when Blog Talk answers. So I would suggest that you hang up and call in again, and I'll let them know that you're calling. And tell her to hit number one when Blog Talk answers. Okay. Okay. I don't think okay. Betty can hear you, Marty. Oh, okay. And, uh, well, anyway, uh, we have – We're going to uh, go to Marty. We want to talk a little bit before Paris gets on about the Chapter 39 injunction to show you that they're yes. not even following their own laws. So if Paris is ready to tell her story – uh, that's fine. If not, we'll continue on with our conversation about the Chapter 39. I think this is – can you hear me? Is, is this uh, Paris? Hello? Is this Paris? Um, hello? Can yes. you all hear yes. me? Yes. Oh, perfect. Okay. Yes. I was actually on hold before. I guess you couldn't hear me, so fantastic. Well, you, you, have to hit number one. You, you have to hit the number one if you want to come on air. So oh, uh, that flags oh, me. Yeah, I Sorry, I didn't hear that yeah. at all. So, all right. That's all right. Yet. Tara, okay. Uh, we so, want to I, talk shortly yeah. about your your um, your settlement, how they took your daughter, and then we're going to start filling in some spots. We're going to ask you questions because you're fixing to go into litigation. We have to be careful what we say on air, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you want me to go back as far as where the first settlement happens? Yes, that's important to let Marty's viewers understand how they were able to why they took your child. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, our daughter was born happy, healthy, and all of the above. And I I have a previous history and working history experience in nursing. And um, 
so I noticed that some things weren't right with our daughter. So I started doing some uh, investigation on my own and talking to pediatricians and specialists and people that I had worked with in the system prior um, to ask them because the only thing that, you know, that had happened with our daughter or that was different is that she had gone to a well visit and had received her uh, infant immunizations. And, of course, we had been trained that, you know, all those things are safe. And, of course, I felt the same thing. I felt they were safe. And, but this was not right because she was having a lot of neurological issues. And once I had talked with a pediatrician, I actually ended up going through three pediatricians, which was kind of, um, you know, interesting to me. They, they weren't so keen on my story to begin with that, and, you know, in my saying, look, I'm documenting this. I'm documenting it like it's a chart. And so I know that something isn't right. I'm, I'm, I know how to observe. I know observations. And I know neurological issues. And so um, ended up over several years' time, I was able to document a vaccine injury case. And it was based solely off of my documentation, off of my journal, off of my day planner, and going to different specialists and going to, um, you know, to, to different doctors and, and having specific tests ran. Because in the world of the medical uh, profession, there is no FDA-approved test for vaccine injury. This should be alarming to everybody, but it isn't. It's, it's very common that it's not alarming to a lot of people. So sad but true, our daughter just, she was having hundreds of seizures per day. They were giving her medication that wasn't approved for an infant because it was the only seizure medication that there was. And, you know, we were just basically throwing darts. And I was working very closely with all the specialists. I went through um, genetics testing in, in two different children's hospitals in two different because I wanted a an opinion to make sure that that was what I was truly observing and through numerous specialists. In fact, I went through five different states of children's hospitals documenting what I was doing, looking at case studies of previous cases since 19, I believe it was 1992, where the first case um, with a DPAT uh, child or a child that had had the DPAT was having some of the similar uh, uh, table injuries as my daughter was. So I was documenting all this, and I contacted a couple of attorneys and, or a firm. And as you know, these are not civil cases. They're, instead, they're a federal tort. And so I had to have a specific type of attorney that was credentialed as a federal attorney um, that specially, he, that they have to be approved for vaccine injury torts. So it can't even be just anybody federally barred. It has to be someone who can litigate in the vaccine court. And it literally took me six months, maybe a year to do this. And I found a farm that was in Tennessee. And it was a, a firm of reputable attorneys who had quite a few of these vaccine injury cases under their belt. And the, the litigating attorney that I had 
um, took my information and he said, you know, he was trying to make sure that I knew what I was talking about. And he says, you know, I need to take my information back and look at some case studies and, and see what we've got to look at. When in the midst of all this, he disclosed to me that his wife is a federal judge. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird, you know, like, I guess I hadn't really thought about it, but I thought, well, okay. So um, we literally spent in federal court, I spent seven years um, trying to prove this vaccine injury case. And by the time I finally got into um, the magistrate or the federal judge, I learned that he was retiring. And when I spoke with him, you know, he asked me my side of the story. They literally separate you from your spouse and your family. So only one person is allowed to go in with the judge into the courtroom, but yet with all of DHHS, DHHS attorneys were there because what I had to do in order to prove this case is that I had to file suit against the Department of Health and Human Services. And so when... I was on the stand and talking with this judge, you know, the, the judge didn't question it. And the, um, the litigating firm that I had actually chose the professional witness because they obviously have people that they work with. So the professional witness who took my information, my, basically my day planner, and my journal where our daughter, um, you know, I was writing down her symptoms and charting everything. The, it, it, he was actually the, um, uh, he was the dean at La Bonner's Children's Hospital. Oddly enough, we had actually been to see him and visit him and actually ended up visiting with one of his colleagues instead during all of this, going taking our daughter to different hospitals, to children's hospitals. He took my information and he backed my information. And the judge basically looked at me and he says, you know what? I'm so sorry that you and your family have gone through this. And he says, I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that your daughter had a vaccine injury and I'm going to rule this case in your favor. And he asked me if I wanted the decision published or unpublished, and I asked him to please publish the decision. And now I wish in some ways that I hadn't published it because there are people who, um, there are people who exploit that. And my whole, my whole premise of asking for it to be published was so that, um, you know, and the way that I've been taught and the way that I believe in living my life is that, if we find something like that that's wrong, let's fix it or let's try to find a solution for it and work with other people to find a solution. Even though sometimes we don't always agree on every bullet point, let's try to find a median to where we can start finding solutions for it. So I didn't want this to be hidden. And I had done several years of advocacy prior, you know, prior, before that because of the freedom to, you know, the healthy freedom of choice. So to either choose medical or alternative. And so when we won this case and it was paid out, it was actually paid out in two different annuities. And so, of course, this was something that was kind of new to me. So I was having to research all this as I, as I went because obviously now I was under the impression I had worked in a lot of different positions 
within the system, not just nursing, but I had worked in foster care. I had also worked as a CASA advocate. I was really familiar with a lot of different areas in the system, and now I felt betrayed because there's a vaccine that was given to my child. I was led to believe it was safe. And then I started finding out there were a whole bunch of other children that were having the same problem that because their information wasn't getting documented like my daughter's was, and I found that those people were being snubbed, and in fact, they were being gaslit all over the place like they didn't know what they were talking about, but yet their cases were almost identical to mine. And in fact, it was the same clinic. There were families that were being accused of shaken baby syndrome, all sorts of things. So this is like a bunch of craziness coming on to me at one time, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is insane. So then after I start learning about the annuities and how everything would be transferred, we have a care planner that's flying to our home. Well, because I had been working with our daughter, um, I was her primary caregiver, her I managed all of her health care because of my experience and because I was her stay-at-home mom, but I managed all of her health care, doing all of her therapies, her treatments. I had trained in every therapy that she had so that I could do them at home so she could basically get double the amount of therapy. She was starting to walk. She was starting to talk. She was, so she was starting to heal. And in that process, we were starting to take her off of some of her medications because she no longer needed them, not just because I wanted to not give her medicine, but I worked with her doctor at the time who, uh, you know, I would ask him, you know, can we run some labs to see how her labs are doing? I don't want her to stay on medication the rest of her life just because we can give her a drug and somebody makes money off of it if she's clearly making progress, I see no need to keep her on these drugs. These drugs are controlling her neurotransmitters. And so when we had the care planner to come, she was really surprised. She she was going to do an entire assessment and had planned on being there for three days. And when I told her, I said, you know, I had already I had already talked with all of our therapists. I had gotten reports from all my therapists. I had gotten reports from the doctors, you know, on, on different assessments and even projections for her. And I said, you know, I don't want you to be offended by this, but I wanted to do some research for you. So I gathered all this information for you, and then I'll let you go ahead and assess our daughter. If you have any questions, ask me. And she says, you know, I'm so blown away. I don't think I've ever had anybody do this before. And she says, I will go ahead and assess your daughter. And she called the next day, and she says, I'm just not going to come back, you know, for day two and day three because of the work that you've done. You've got contact information here for all these people. And she says, if you don't mind, I would like to use your care plan for your daughter's care plan, and I'm just going to present this to DHHS. And I told her, I said, that's absolutely fine. Well, then they have a third-party company who comes in who um, they, they um, seed the funding uh, in two different annuities. And so those two annuities, one becomes a medical trust, and the second one becomes what is part of it's the guardianship. The guardianship is considered as the, the long-term or the futures. So in other words, it would be that child's future earnings, salary, um, you know, for any medical care, health care, anything like that. This is what the, the guardianship 
account would be or the guardianship trust would be. The medical trust would be for her current, and it's replenished every year. However, it's a different amount each year. It's not based on her needs at all, but it had an initial seed uh, amount in it. And then it's, what it's based on is that the, uh, the bank who has the trustee has oversight of both of those. And in addition, there is a, um, a financial advisor that works with the bank. And in our case, it was Morgan Keegan Trust that there's an advisor there. So everything that's replenished in the medical trust is based on what that advisor decides to um, to uh, invest in. So there's bonds, there's stocks, there's uh, mutual funds. And I started becoming aware of looking at these things thinking, oh, my gosh, this is so weird. Because I started seeing that, and I started seeing it as my daughter's trust, and this medical trust, is literally become like my daughter, so it's her identity, and it's being traded on the stock exchange. And so it might be one time that they lose a lot of money, and so there's only like $20,000 a year for her medical trust, and another time they he might invest, and there was $80,000, but it replenished every spring according to when our um, our case was settled. Now, the futures, that grows in a different type of an annuity in it, or in a different type of mutual fund. And so when I started talking with the litigating attorney about this, um, we had been asked if we wanted to become guardians or permanent guardians on our daughter's trust, and that would be my husband and I. And I says, well, sure, but what does that involve? Because I'm not familiar with that terminology necessarily. This is all new to me. And so I'm learning as I go, but, you know, I'm, I'm fairly, I'd like to think I'm fairly intelligent and I can pick it up. And I ask a lot of questions. So I told him right away, don't be offended, because I do ask a lot of questions. And he started telling me, he says, well, you know, you would be responsible for the yearly accounting and, you know, there were the certain categories of where we had done the care plan. I worked one-on-one -on -one with the care planner. Uh, she was a DHS, or yeah, she was a DHHS care planner. And then she worked with the separate company who actually, and you know, who um, seeded the the actual trust. And so. I learned that there were different categories, and the categories would be things that our daughter would need. So it might be nursing care, it might be medications or supplements or whatever. Ours looks a little bit different because the allopathic treatment wasn't doing so well for her. She, planned, she had planed out, and so we needed to start getting creative so that she would start progressing. And so, And she did start progressing once we changed our care plan a little bit. Well, when I asked the attorney, he's, you know, he was saying, let's, we have to go in front of a judge at the time we lived in Arkansas. And so we, because this, that's where the damages took place, that's where both the guardianship and 
the medical trust were both seated. That was our residence at the time. And so we had to go in front of a circuit judge there to be appointed as co-permanent guardians. So my husband was a co-permanent guardian. I was a co-permanent guardian. And we were responsible for the oversight of our daughter's trust as well as all the accounting for it. We had a trustee who was there basically to sign off on the funds and take our requests. And in addition to that, in Arkansas, there was a ad litem attorney who was the ad litem for the estate, not the person, but the estate. So my husband and I shared duties as co-permanent guardian for our daughter, but then there was an ad litem over the estate. And when we went to do the guardianship, we got the documents and we had to present them to the attorney or they were presented to the attorneys and we all had to sign them. Something that I noticed on there is that our daughter was labeled a ward of the state. And I questioned it and I said, you know, I'm, I'm curious about this. Why, you know, our daughter is clearly not orphaned. She's not in foster care. And I'm clear about pretty much what a ward is, but, you know, why is this stating that she's a ward of the state? Because we don't need anyone to have oversight of our daughter. This is why my husband and I are co-permanent guardians. And besides that, being her parents, you know, being her mother and her father, that takes precedence even over being guardians over the estate. And I was clarified right away by this litigating attorney who told me that, look, you don't have a choice. This is what he told me. You do not have a choice. If you want this settlement, if you want this entitlement, you need to sign this right now. He says, you can always appeal it, but I guarantee you're going to lose. And that's what I was told. So I was put on the spot. I was pressured and coerced. I went ahead and signed it because our daughter needed help, and there was no way in her capacity at the time that if her dad and I worked 80 hours a week, we could not provide the care that she was getting or that she needed because she was critical. And I had already gone through over seven years of trauma care with her to where she couldn't walk. She was having hundreds of seizures a day. If anyone that didn't have medical training at all, their child would have never lived through that. And I know some of those families that their child never lived through that. So I was asking him, I says, well, why is she, you know, I kept asking, because I was just blown away. Why was she labeled? And it's on the guardianship papers where we are appointed that she is a ward of the state. And never got an answer. I asked the attorney, the the litem over the estate, and no one would even respond to me. And he, the, the litigating attorney responded to me by saying, you know, you, you don't want to do this. You're going to lose. And you don't want to appeal it because you're going to lose again. And if you want the funds for your daughter, then you're going to need to sign it and accept it. I got no questions at all after that about the care that I was doing for her. In fact, I did 14 years of care for our daughter. I completely was rehabbing her. She was walking with a walker and single pole canes and talking. She was doing well with her school. I was home educating her. I had her on specific diets. I had gone back to school to finish a uh, Bachelor of Science in Nutrition. I since gone on to do a Doctor of Naturopathy. And um, 
I worked well with all the therapists. I was constantly searching out new therapies and treatment modalities for her, challenging her, you know, and she was doing really, really well. And um, so then we get to uh, the point of we're in the state of uh, Texas because we had moved to California for a few years to do some of these therapies and treatments, and that's how she got to where she was is because we had moved there, um, and it was just too expensive to stay there and live. So we decided to move back to Arkansas while we waited on uh, a position for my husband in Texas. We really wanted to move to Texas. And so when that position came open, we moved to Texas, and we had lived there for about two years. I had established all the services for our daughter. I had an immunologist that I was working with. She was already... Uh, receiving care from other doctors that were there and an established patient. We were already doing treatment plans and therapies for her. She was working with a therapist there as well. And I went ahead and continued with her school. We even traveled to um, another state to visit a uh, psychologist to do um, some remapping of her neurotransmitters to get her functioning so she could progress to the next level for her education. And um, out of nowhere, I had noticed some behaviors out of my husband, and I requested that he seek professional counseling. And it was because we had had an agreement when we married, and even after that, if there were ever anything, we would have an open-door policy and, you know, just open communication that if we noticed something that triggered one or the other, um, and he had actually gone to school for counseling himself for drug and alcohol addictions, and when I asked him that, it, it triggered him, and he left with the girls. I thought he was leaving with the girls to just go cool off for a little bit, so what happens is that several hours later, I couldn't get in contact with him, couldn't get in contact with our daughters, and I call, started calling all the services. I called the police. The police blew me off. I started calling missing persons organizations, numerous missing persons organizations. I had case numbers where I called these, uh, these missing persons. I had case workers and had spoken with caseworkers, nothing was happening. And so after, you know, a few months of this, I started contacting attorneys. I started contacting legal aid. Keep in mind, I was at home, staying at home with our daughter as a full-time caregiver for our daughter. So the only salary I was getting was, you know, for caring for our daughter. And I wasn't getting any other salary. So when my daughter left, I had no more salary. And the salary I was getting for her, I was putting back into her care. I contacted these missing persons organizations who started telling me that they don't really, you know, get involved. They, they will take my information, but they don't really get involved. And instead, I was getting a phone call once a week asking me if I had heard from my husband or my oldest daughter. We were, our oldest daughter was 17 at the time. And I said, well, I mean, I contacted missing persons for my missing children and my missing family that I haven't heard from. I assume that the missing persons organizations, what do you do? You know, what, do you, what exactly is it that you do? 
And when I was told that, you know, they're there to refer services. So finally had gotten a call from one of the really large organizations that puts out alerts and had spoken with the caseworker there because I finally just had it with her. And she kept calling me every week asking me if I'd heard from them. And I'm like, well, what are you doing? You're supposed to be missing persons. What about all these alerts and things that you're supposed to do? And she says, Unless you can get a report filed with the local police, and the local police gives us that report, there's nothing that we can do. So I says, okay, so what I'm hearing you say is unless I get a report from the police, whom I told you from the very beginning is refusing to give me a report or write a report for me, even though all of this is very suspicious to them, they're telling me that he's their father, he can do whatever he wants to with them. Now, we were married, and there was no divorce, no nothing that was happening that I was aware of, that there really was actually something happening. So when I told her that, I said, so I know that you receive federal funding for what you're doing. So every call that you're documenting on me, when you're calling me and doing nothing, I'm asking you to intervene with the police because this is a serious situation. My daughter is disabled. I can't imagine what she's going through right now, that she's just been uprooted from her mother and her primary caregiver who had her healthy, not on any drugs, nothing, because she had been discontinued from all those things. She was walking and talking, a neurological traumatic brain injury from a chemical assault to her brain has been uprooted from everything that she knows, has been removed from that person, and there's no explanation for any of it. No one's come to me and asked me anything. Nobody's asked any questions. In fact, the police were laughing about it. They've refused to file reports. I was even told to shut the hell up by one of the officers because he says, shut the hell up, you're being emotional. And so he says, I need help with this. Can you help me? And she says, well, ma'am, we can't do that. We can't get involved. We can't call the police and, and ask them to file a report. So I was kind of at a stalemate. I couldn't get any help with that. So then I started going up the, up the chain of the ladder, I guess you can say, that I started contacting, you know, different um, better women's shelters and started calling a lot of the national numbers. And then I started branching out from that and calling the state authorities and DHHS and the oversight. And, and I was getting the same story from everybody. And they asked me, well, you know, do you have – from everybody I got this. Do you have a lawyer? Do you have a lawyer? Do you have an attorney? And I says, I cannot afford an attorney. Well, in the state of Texas, you can get legal aid. And they have an oversight division there. It's Texas, I forget what it's called now, but anyways, there is an oversight division there for that that they will help you to get referred basically to legal aid. When I call legal aid, I was told there was a conflict of interest. I said, what, is a, what does a conflict of interest mean? Well, I learned that's where my, the child of my, or the, the father of my children had actually filed for legal aid. He was the one with the job, and he filed for legal aid and got the legal aid. So I couldn't file anything until I could either borrow or beg or do something to get money. Well, it never happened for me. So when I called DHHS, and 
said, I w- would like to file a report. You know, I want to file a claim against, I've learned that there are um, shelters. At, by that time, it was 19 months later, I received a summons for dissolution of marriage, but my family was in Florida. And I had no idea where they were at. And I learned that they were in Florida. And I'm like, okay, so now what do I do? Because I didn't expect a divorce to be filed. And I, there's been no contact of anybody to tell me what they were doing, what was happening, or even where my children were at. And here I've been fighting with all these agencies, including ombudsman and governor and state attorney general. And they said, well, you know what? It's over six months. So, and I was even told this by attorneys, now that it's over six months, you know, your, your child is in the jurisdiction of the state of Florida. And I said that she was family abducted and kidnapped. And so then it started going through all the court systems that I was told, you know, that there was in the state of Texas that there was basically nothing I could do. I literally could get help nowhere. I have a laundry list of agencies and claims, even, you know, even state uh, interstate uh, agencies that I filed claims with that literally what they ended up being in my mind was a referral network back to the system and it was going in circles. Literally nobody would do it. Nobody would do anything. They just kept referring back into the system to a different person and saying, well, have you contacted this person? Have you contacted that person? And I said, I, I contacted them and I filed claims. Then I started going higher than that. And I started contacting the DOJ who completely ignored me, never even responded to my report or my claim. Then I finally got a hold of them again, and they referred me to the FBI. The FBI in Washington, D.C. referred me to the OIG, who referred me back to the FBI, who referred me back to the local police department, and it never ended. Then when it went to Florida, the same exact thing happened there, and, and it continues this day. It's almost five years later, and it's, it's going in circles, you know, that, that no one – is doing anything. Now, what I will tell you is that when I got to the hearing for the um, the divorce case in the state of Florida, that was even, a, even worse of a nightmare because I have documentation of what I had done with my daughter and that I had medical records showing that I was her primary caregiver, her healthcare manager. I was primary contact for everybody. I had home plans with everybody. I had even the documentation with the care planner for DHHS. None of this mattered in the state of Florida. Absolutely nothing of it mattered whatsoever. It was completely blown over. I had even mentioned in court about the family abduction. It was completely blown over. I was told in court that I was abusive and neglectful. On the court documents, it states that my husband just simply relocated. And so what happens is they get stuck into a false narrative, and the whole system follows the false narrative. There was never an investigation of any kind. Nobody asked me anything. Nobody even investigated me. There, there was, there's not even any evidence 
and then he and I even got an attorney, and the attorney started following the false narrative and dumped me 26 days prior to my court date. So, Paris, I had a question I wanted to ask you. Now, yeah. from 2016 through 2019, did the inspector general uh, provide you an affidavit of the abuse that they submitted to DCF? No. Okay, that is the requirement, that from 2016 to 2019, the inspector general uh, are the ones over DCF investigations. They are the ones that has to rule if a child or elderly has been abused by a family member, they have to write a statement, they did the investigation, and then they have to submit it in to the DCF to support their findings in order for them to have removed your daughter. No, they they did not. In fact, no one did anything. And in fact, all they did when I I call these people, I'm the one who called them, and asked them and begged them to do investigations. And I was never I was either never responded to or like the BHHS regional oversight. When I contacted that person, I actually have emails from that person stating. Because I told her, I said, I want to file a claim against the the shelter for not investigating me. And she says, you're crazy. This is what she told me on the phone. She says, you're crazy. I says, I'm not crazy. This is my disabled daughter. And I have protected this child. And I have seen her. I saved her life. I had to do CPR on this child because she died twice. And I had to do CPR on her to bring her back. And this is absolute careless control. This is endangering her life, what has happened to her. This isn't about mother or father. This is about Paris. endangering her life. What we can do is we can, I will, we'll give you the information on how to spend, uh, contact the director of inspector general requesting that <laughs> investigation report. If they come back and say they don't have one, that's the law back in 2016 through 2019. That you that will confirm the child was kidnapped because the state had the state inspector has to mandatory has to uh, give the report to the court to remove the child and to waive your rights as guardian. They can't just bypass things. And the law, the FBI has to follow the law, and you need to point out certain facts. So we're going to give you contact information on how to contact the inspector general to get that report. Okay. That will help you follow another police report of the kidnapping. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, because that brings up another point, actually, um, Peggy, that when the, you know, after the, uh, the hearing, um, my, my husband was granted sole custody of our daughter, and I wasn't, I wasn't given anything. I was actually told that if I wanted to come to Florida um, for four I think it was four 30-minute visits. This was insane. Four 30-minute visits. I could, I could fly to Florida four different times, 30-minute visits, that she would have a caregiver with her. And because the judge knew that it was going to upset her, he would have the caregiver to um, medicate her so she wouldn't be upset. Now, he knew this would, this would upset me. And um, so I never agreed to that. In fact, I never agreed to anything. I never consented to anything that they ever said. Uh, or this is critical now with mm-hmm. your DCF care plan did you sign anything with them no okay perfect no. So that, yeah. that now, will help the, you 
with the kidnapping yes. because two things that you have to think about, Paris, that you have to follow federal laws. Inspector General has to do that investigation. They have to submit it in with the courts and DCF uh, report. Okay, DCF did not have a care plan, so they did not provide probable cause to the courts, so that will help support the kidnapping. This is two very important things you need to write down, and I'll guide you through this uh, tomorrow on how to get in contact with these people. Perfect. Okay. I can do that. Yeah, because they actually removed me. Now, remember, if going back, you know, circling back to when I said when this entitlement um, of this disbursement for the, uh, the vaccine injury, right. that it was my care plan that I gave to the DHHS care planner, and that was even, that was in written correspondence between DHHS, the DHHS attorney, the judge, myself, the trustees, everybody, that that was my care plan, and she was adopting that my care plan, and, in fact, she added to my care plan. So they accepted my care plan with the initial disbursement. But beyond that, even after being trafficked, you know, gone to Florida, basically she was trafficked to Florida. Okay, you know, let me ask you a question. Taken. This is important, Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Did the court, did the judge order it, stipulate in the court order that they had to adopt your plan, but after they adopted it, did they dissolve any kind of relationship after the settlement was uh, given to you? Because that's important. Yeah. So the first, Okay, so the first, when I um, was made a co-permanent guardian with my care plan, um, we were, my husband and I both were made co-permanent guardians over our daughter, for our daughter. And then there mm-hmm. was an, and over her estate as well. So it was both. But then we had an attorney at Lightham to help us with accounting and things like that just over her estate. Okay, let me it ask you a question. Not, Stop there. Now, uh-huh. when they did, the, the, the gal appointed uh, attorney for your daughter, how many uh-huh. days did they say that he had to represent your daughter until they appointed you and your husband as guardian. What's oh, the stipulation you know what? in that? It was, it was honestly, it was all very quick. It, it all happened very quick. That was this was back in 2010 when this happened. The initial appointment for that. So, um, yeah, I don't know, but it all happened very quick. Because like, what I'm trying to get at. If they only allow to be part of the proceedings for so many days, and then they have to petition for a guardian to take over that duty. Mm, yeah, this was this was then, and on, to be honest, I mean, my husband and I were appointed. There was never any question about it. We were appointed guardians. But when my husband filed for the divorce in 2000, now he he took the girls in 2017 of May. And then it was not until January of 2019 that I got served for the summons for divorce. And that was 19 months later, I believe it was. I mean, you know, it's definitely not six months. It was 19 months, but I was not even served. Um, And when I got it, once that proceeding happened in the state of Florida, now keep in mind the the original guardianship appointment for me and my husband was in Arkansas. And we had moved to Texas, established residence and services and everything in Texas. We had lived there for two years. And then he took the girls 
and went to the state of Florida and basically hid them out at his at his mother's house until 19 months later. I was served with a summons for divorce. When that happened, and he was given sole custody of our daughter, our other daughter had emancipated out. So she she was over the age of 18 by that time. She was 17 when he took her. She was 19. She was 19. Yeah, 19, 20. Whenever. Um, he uh, filed for the divorce, but it was soon after that that he moved quickly to petition the state of Arkansas to remove me as a co-permanent guardian. Well, in the state of Arkansas, of course, once the divorce had happened and she was he was given sole custody of her, then in the state of Arkansas, what happened, this is when COVID and everything was starting, and so in the state of Arkansas, the Arkansas, I was told by the guardian at Lightham over the case there, because I had been giving her information and telling her what was going on in the state of Florida, and that there was something that was not right there. I said there, I feel like that there, and you know, that there are proceedings that are happening behind my back. And in fact, I had even signed up for e-file and I noticed that there was stuff that was happening on the docket that I couldn't pull anything up. So I couldn't access it. And I told this guardian at Lightham in the state of Arkansas, and I said, something is not right with this. There's something that's going on and I don't like it. I don't get a good feeling about it. And I says it was all sneaky and deceitful to begin with, but I says this is much more than that. I just have a really bad spirit of discernment about this. And there's just something that's not right about it. And she says, well, they can't remove you as a co-permanent guardian without you know, without fault or without, uh, you know, fault finding or something of that nature. But she says they can't just remove you. And so we get to the hearing and, well, listen, they did because there's no investigation. There's nothing on my case. This was even according to my own attorney who dumped me, said there's never been discovery on your case. There is no, there's never been an investigation and there are no discoveries. There's, there's no discovery on your case from the very inception of it. So, okay, what you also need to do, Paris, in 2019, the, uh, the DOJ gave uh, every uh, county in the United States authorization for the sheriff to be able to investigate DCF cases because they got that grant money. So now you're going to have to contact the sheriff's office and ask for the DCF uh, report that they did. You're going to need all that to show that they did not follow any policy procedures and it's still kidnapping because as long as they didn't follow any policies and procedures, you got them. Yeah, and, you know, that's funny that you mentioned that because, honestly, for the last six months or longer, I have been actually trying to contact the sheriff there in Florida, in their county. I had another organization who's a fairly big organization to do a campaign for me. They, it was their a, a friend's idea, and she's in that organization. And um, so what we did was we basically blasted the governor, state attorney general's office, office of inspector general, and um, I contacted the sheriff's office to he or his administrative assistant won't return my calls. So I have okay. an advocate. I will guide you on how you have to do it. You have to Perfect. do a Freedom of Information Act on the investigation. You have to provide a case number, and you have to get it notarized that since you're not in person requesting these records, they, can, they will not accept that over the phone 
or in mm-hmm. writing unless it's notarized because they have to have your ID that you are the person. Uh, uh-huh. Because if you're not a party to the action, they don't have to talk to you or provide anything to you. So you have to oh, pr- yeah. provide that letter, and we're going to help you get that done, and we'll get that done next week to the sheriff's department. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, in fact, when I've been trying to get, um, you know, I I had a difficult time getting information on the um, the original uh, divorce, you know, trying to get information from that county, which was odd. It was a different county, Peggy, that the actual proceedings for the divorce or the dissolution was filed in than my husband and my daughters were actually living in. It was a completely different county that all that was filed in when it, from the inception. So all these things have been going on, and I was never even notified or served or anything else, and they knew where I was at. They, I mean, so, you know, there were gifts that were being sent to my daughters and stuff, and, and so they knew exactly where I was at. I've, I've been very open and honest about that. I've never hit anything. And in the state of Arkansas, they removed me as a permanent guardian anyways based on the statute. There's only a statute in the state of Arkansas that says there's only one person that when there's a divorce proceeding, there's only one person that gets to be guardian, even though there was no fault finding or anything. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd because I just had the attorney at Lightham to tell me that they have to find fault. Otherwise, if, you know, they're breaking federal law. They, they do don't have find to find fault. fault. Up they until 2019, the inspector general was doing all that investigation, and they have to attach an affidavit to the Department of Children and Family that's now, since 2019, over all guardianships. Wow. I didn't know that, but I did know when I looked up some federal laws that that it did show, you know, that I did read that there should have been a fault finding and there never was. I mean, and in fact, it was a 30-minute hearing basically transferring property. It was like transferring property. And he says, okay, you've gotten a divorce. I've got proof that you've gotten a divorce, you know, in the state of Florida. And, and I've honestly, in every single courtroom, every hearing that I've been part of, I have said my children were abducted and kidnapped and, you know, they were family abducted. And so I was also led to believe from the research I've done is that at that point in any of these courtrooms, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I, it sounds reasonable to me, why is it that none of these judges ordered an investigation to be done at that point in time or had the sheriff to do an investigation at that point in time. I can tell you why. I can tell you why. Okay, from 2016 to 2019, the inspector general does the investigation, Paris. If they find Mm -hmm. probable cause that you harmed a child, it goes to the administration clerk assistance, and then the judges are notified of that. It has to go through that process or it's not legal. I can show you a whole lot of things on my case that are not legal. It is just absolutely insanity. And to know that this has gone on for almost five years, and it's, I mean, like I have a lot of things documented. I have my DHHS, my care plan that I gave when I got the entitlement for our daughter back in 2010. And so I I have some documentation. 
I used to work for Department of Children and Family, Department of Child, uh, Child Support uh, Enforcement, Department of Labor. I know all the laws, policies, and procedures. Yeah. Yeah, I knew that something wasn't right, but it's like they're steamrolling me. You know, they're following the false narrative, and 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 I have witnesses to the the pro and the probate court. So I've gotten notices to two different probate hearings, supposedly hearings, and I have witnesses at both of those. And so I have affidavits from those witnesses to both of those probate hearings who said that they had never witnessed or experienced anything like that in their life of how the judges and the lawyers treated me and how they never acknowledged anything that I said. Never. And well, fact, you know why that is, Paris? Because you sued the human, uh, human health services, and that's a conflict of interest because they all have contracts with each other. Yes, yes, and you know, I learned that from, well, from the first date when I started, because I know the proper chain of command, you know, I was calling all these different people thinking, surely to goodness, somebody was going to have some kind of morals or something and acknowledge what I was saying. That never happened. And they're nothing but a giant referral service. And, and, and it made me so angry because this, this big, I'm going to call them a child trafficking agency now, that, you know, we're supposed to be helping to find missing children. And when I confronted this caseworker and said, you know what, you're, you're basically trafficking children. I'm telling you that my child's life is in danger, medically in danger. Now she's medically kidnapped. My child's on Every- drugs right now. She can't even talk. Department of Children and Family is human sex trafficking people. Even Senator Nancy Schaefer confirmed that and went to Congress. And I'm appalled that none of our senators did anything about it. So since they haven't done anything about it, we have to take action ourselves and all unite to do something about this because they're, they're controlling the guardianship programs now, and they're targeting the elderly that's alone, that don't have a spouse or any children, are they targeting parents that are divorced and targeting their children for large settlements that they have won and yeah, stealing, and those, what, stealing that money and putting it in a DCF trust fund? Yes, yes. And you know what I learned about that, too, is that these parents who are going and thinking that they're, you know, that they're – they're full of pride in everything that they won the golden prize or they, 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 they won the cash cow or whatever. They better be thinking very long and hard because I'm telling you, I'm watching parents like that who have won and then the courts and DCF is coming in and they're removing that parent that's left and they're putting the child in foster care or they're putting them in group homes and they're taking the money. And I know that this is what's happened to my daughter because the last um, notice that I got from the probate court basically stated that they were setting my daughter. My daughter has two very wealthy trusts, or she did have two very wealthy trusts. I don't see that now that she has a guardian, an advocate, a drunk power of attorney. It, it, her power of attorney showed up drunk to court. He was so drunk he couldn't even sign in on Zoom. And I, I mean, I have witness to that too. And, and I have documentation of it, actually. That's good. You're going to need it. Yeah. I mean, I have. And I'm not, af- I'm not afraid to present it because it's a 
appalling to me that we have these people in these positions that are acting as though they're there protecting people and children and elderly, and in fact, they're not. They're exploiting it, and they're stealing and robbing people blind, and then they're killing them. They're euthanizing them. And, and if people haven't woken up and figured this out already, they are so asleep that they're under the dirt. They just need to put up a monument already and put their names on it and claim themselves as dead. It's exactly, Carol. Like we've, been, we've been going on Marty's show for several months now, me and Betty with USA Guardianship Task Force, and, and bless Marty for allowing us to come on her show. And we've been showing her viewers where to find this evidence to show they are going to take every one of our rights away from us, own us, and our assets. I think within two to three years, we will become a communist country if people don't wake up. We're showing them the proof what is being wrote into legislation all over the United States. We must unite together or we don't have a chance. That's why we're doing this petition to Congress, and we're 70% done with it, and we're almost ready to launch it. Yeah. Yeah, people do have to, and I work with a lot of other advocates as well that, you know, there's a lot of talk about reform, and it sounds nice, it sounds catchy, you know, it sounds like a jingle or whatever, but there, yes, there, there is no reform to this kind of evil. There just isn't. You're, we're talking about people who are working in positions that are getting well, well paid for those positions, their jobs and their actions and their behaviors, even though they're, they're amoral, are, are being protected even when they're harming every single oath. And what I want to point out, do no harm. What I want to point out, Paris, you mentioned about when you asked that attorney, why are you labeling my daughter a ward? A lot of people yeah. don't understand that a guardianship is controlled and owned by the state. They own that person and their assets. They can do whatever yeah. they want with your assets and daughter, and you can't do anything about it under a guardianship. They forced you under duress. And a guardianship. Yes. You didn't go up there and apply for and petition on your own. This is the tactic they're using. These attorneys, uh, they personally used that with me and Betty. You know, uh, well, not with Betty, but with me. That if you don't sign this, you're never going to see your son again. With me living in another state, they went ahead when I jacked to it and put him in, and I haven't seen my son in five years, Paris. Yeah, and that's honestly what they did to me as well in in the state of Florida when the judge had told me, you will follow Miss Gull, like what I say and what I tell you to do, otherwise you will never see your daughters again. That's what the judge extortion. told me in the custody hearing. That's extortion right there. Yes, yes. And and I and I told him I said, but sir, I was the one who was the primary caregiver. I have medical records proving that I personally did all of her therapies. I had home programs. I was the primary contact for the doctors. Even the doctor turned against me. The doctor, here's what the doctor said to me. And this was a doctor that I had gone in and interviewed. I go in and interview everybody, the therapist, everybody. Before I allow them to do any kind of care, treatment, or therapy, I set up an appointment with those people for at least an hour with a list of questions. And they have to answer those questions before I even consider them to look at my daughter. And when I, I had this man since she was 18 months old, and she's now 18, 
And when I called him after all this had happened, I said, you know, this is, this is not right. I said, because, you know, just because the alienation, I don't know what's going on. I haven't been told anything. My husband went uh, no contact. I mean, we're going on five years and no contact now. Like, you know, tell me what I did wrong. If I did something wrong, when I thought, you know what, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I want somebody to prove to me what I did wrong. I want to see the, I want to see an investigation from every. You didn't do anything wrong. They robbed you blind. It had nothing to do with you. It was the money. They have They have terrorized my child. And I can prove that they went after the money. And, you know, in my opinion, here's where it started out. It started out as a family issue. There were no problems between me and my husband, but there was a lot of issues with my in-laws. They didn't like that I stayed at home with our daughters, that I cared for my daughter full time. They didn't like that I homeschooled our daughters, and there was constant conflict with that. And I do believe that they probably called the DHS hotline but then when he went to the shelter, I learned that, you know, some things had been planned prior. So when he got to Florida, he was basically stuck in Florida. You know, he was in the, in the situation by then. But where I'm going to put my blame at is there's been p- plenty of professionals that I have pointed out evidence that I was the one who was caring for my daughter. I was never neglectful in her care. Then it occurred to me. You know what? When I signed that first entitlement over, she was a ward of the state. What was I thinking? But what else could I have done? I wasn't given an option. And then it really made me mad because I was coerced into that. I, you know, I, I had no option to do it. I had to get care for her because she was at that breaking point to where she was starting to do good. There was no way that my husband and I could have ever afforded all the therapies and treatments and the things that I was doing for her. She basically had private duty with me with my prior nursing career. So she had private duty with me. But in addition to that, it was easy for me to train on all of her therapies. And that's why she was, she was doing so well. It's heart wrenching, Peggy. And it, you know, to see my child regress. Some of the reasons they have to take the good parent out of the picture is because the, the abuser, the father, didn't take care of the daughter. So DCF can manipulate the father and do what they want, and they can milk your daughter in federal funding, too, and make millions of dollars off of that. And people will say, well, how is that possible, Peggy? Well, they can yeah. uh, take her to this hospital, that hospital, that physician, and you they can rack up 100 to 200 physicians and several months, and yes. and milk uh, uh, milk the uh, federal funds and Medicaid because she's under eighteen. So it's very scary what they're allowed to do, and there's no oversight and accountability with this. There's exactly. no data, no no tracking her, her doctors. Yes, and I've actually brought it up even to her doctor, and you know what her doctor says? She's happy, she's healthy, she has lots of family and friends who love her here. How could she she's happy well without her mother? Yeah, she's being well done. No. You're like all this, and he basically hung up and, and says, you know what, I'll think about talking to your husband. So, I mean, it took a lot for me to call him and say, look, you need to talk with him because this is, this, this is causing our daughter not, it, it's causing her mental, emotional, and physical trauma, period. And a they child, don't have the best interest in the child. Yeah, well, 
Oh my gosh! And you know, just all the all the players. And you're right. There is no oversight on any of these people because I ha- I know who to call with the oversight. And when you're getting to the OID, you're getting to FBI and DOJ, and they just keep telling you, "Well, you have to call back where it happened." Well, no, because somebody else needs to do something about it. I've had I've even called crimes against children and asked them to do an investigation. And you know what happened with that? The investigator asked me for my information, asked me for the father's phone number, and he says, well, I'll investigate it. And he says, I want, if I don't call you back soon, I want you to call me back next week. Well, I called him back, and he says, well, I called the father, and I can't see where he did anything wrong. Now, this is a crimes against children. I have probable cause that the, the father and his family took our daughter, likely thinking that they were getting a cash cow, which they never did anything to get any of that money for our child. I personally was using that, those funds for our daughter. I was personally responsible for all of that. I was personally responsible for setting up the trust for her. And then the guardianship, we were, we were coerced basically into that. But, I mean, as long as we were guardians, it was fine. But then I had no idea how they could – well, guardianship is not a it's – not, it's not a person. You know, it's not a man or a woman. It's a term. So literally anybody can be a guardianship. Well, then that was a wake-up call to me thinking, oh, my word, like, you know, ward of the state, a ward is basically property. It's chattel. And then Exactly. You get, it's a prisoner. Ward equals prisoner. Yes, yes, yes. And so then when I got this last thing from the court where they were showing on there, because I know in my mind, and, and I've been told this, that with our daughter's trust, okay, that – before we got the trust, I had to have SSDI for her. I had to apply for SSDI just to get her the basic therapies and everything because, you know, having a child that's disabled, can't walk, can't talk or anything, it, it's very expensive for all those therapies, and that's what I was doing for her. And I had to apply for that. But once we got the entitlement and the disbursement for her, then I relinquished all of that because you can't have both. You, you can't have over – I don't know, the amount keeps changing, but you can't over, have over a certain dollar amount um, at receiving SSDI from the state, you know, for right. even a disabled child or yourself. So you have to relinquish that whenever you get the guardianship trust. And so I relinquished that. Well, something that was alarming to me is that the last document that I got from the probate court from hearing, I guess it was, let's see, it was in September, of uh, 2021 was the last probate hearing that I was aware of. Um, I'm not sure. All, I mean, they're they're having hearings and stuff. They have been for a long time that I didn't even know what they're doing, and they don't notify me. Um, but the last one the I got that is, had Paris, is they have a protective order. They don't have to notify you. Yeah, and I learned that too by them stating that. Um, they keep telling me when I'm trying to obtain my records, they continue to tell me that I can just go online with my email and, you know, my, I've got to sign on, you know, obviously for the e-file and that I can just go on there and print off anything that I want to, but I can't, I can't even access any of the records. Well, I started looking into that and I looked on the both probates. There's actually two probate um, things on both. There's two different cases 
that I wasn't even aware of. And when I read the paperwork, one is like one is for the person and one's for the property. And they actually had them combined in parentheses on the first notice that I got, making it look as though it was for the property only, but it wasn't. They do that, you know, with the sneaky words and stuff, that they just put it on there and put it in parentheses, and that's what they pay attention to is the crap that's in parentheses. It's not about anything else. And so when I learned that, you know, that they were doing that, then um, I uh, started questioning it and saying, you know, why am I not getting all this information? Why am I not getting served with this stuff? And I started looking, and I finally found, you know, the back, the last of the file on the docket where it has all the interested parties and stuff. My name's not even on it. So I'm listed as her mother, which constitutionally should take precedence, in my understanding, over uh, any other term, but I'm not even a party on the guardianship at all on either case. I'm not even a party. They sent me two notices that I could come to the hearing or be part of the Zoom hearing, but I wasn't a party. That's scary. It is because they didn't even follow their own uh, policies and procedures because the administration judge has to follow the inspector general and they have to follow DCF guidelines before they can remove a guardian. And they have to give you notice. They have to serve you a notice. Nope, he didn't, they didn't do any of that. I was never served any of that. Nothing. So we'll be working on that next week. Perfect. I'm ready. Did you have any questions, Betty? No, I was just thinking about how she, the, um, the 944, um, I don't think that would apply to Paris's case at this point. I think the Senate 1032 would apply, but we're opposing that through Governor Ron DeSanto's office about jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. See, if yeah, this there's, bill no, gets there passed. Definitely no juris- there is definitely no jurisdiction, and I call them out on that, too. And what I was told during the hearing is that if it had, in fact, actually been an abduction and kidnapping, that would have all been taken care of in Texas. That's what the judge told me. See, what, happened what, is, had... what happened, Perry, is you got screwed for the legal system because you're not an attorney and you, don't, you did not know how to legally uh, file proper paperwork because – the FBI, the local law enforcement, whenever they have like a kidnapping case, they go to their counselor and say, okay, uh, they, they check up cases and stuff. They just don't give, go to the judge and say, I need a warrant to take this child back. They have to do a little investigation. So uh, that's the problem. You didn't know how to legally write your complaint to the sheriff's department to get them to, to re- you have to invoke certain statutes. And it should not be like that for the common person that doesn't go to law Mm -hmm. school or study the law. Uh, They take advantage of that, and that's how they continue keeping milking the families in court is because you're not aware of what you have to do and how how you have to say it in order to get law enforcement to do their job. It's not like you go there and you say, okay, my daughter was taken illegally. 
I need your you to assist me. It doesn't work like that. You have to actually write a letter stating certain things in legal terms. Just like with the FBI, you have to send them a prosecution memorandum and attach evidence. You have to serve them. You have to notarize things. They submit it to their attorneys to review it. They look at your case, and then they start getting involved. Now, you also have to write a letter to the FBI stating that you need to th- them to invoke statutes, and I can tell you all the statutes, to Attorney General Ashley Moody for her to approve the investigation for the, uh, the FBI in Florida to, uh, to get involved in your case. So you not yeah, don't have a case, you just didn't know how to talk to these people because you, you don't study law, you're not a lawyer. Exactly. I mean, if it's in the medical profession, I can, I can tell you what it is. And this is what I tell so many people. Like, you know, all this is traumatizing to me anyways because of the fact of how everything happened. I mean, I'm living with my family literally up until the day that they left. And when he left, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know something had happened to them. I had no idea what would, you know, what had happened. I didn't know I was supposed to call the sheriff instead of calling the police because my idea is to call the police. And I mean, I think that's why well, you have to talks. go in there and you have to have a sworn statement. You have to show pictures of your daughter, birth certificates. Not like you can just walk in there and say, okay, I'm going to, I want to report the kidnapping. They require so much elements. Paris, that you have to prove in order for them to intervene in your case. Oh, I actually, actually I did. And in fact, I even lied to them. I had to lie to them to get them to come to my residence or my place where I was staying. I had to lie to them to get them to come there to beg them to do a report. So I did show them birth certificates. I showed them pictures and I showed them even, in fact, I even showed them where I was the primary caregiver of our daughter that you know, that I had even the care plan and stuff for, um, you know, for our daughter, that I had won her vaccine injury case. I mean, it's even Let me ask public, you a question. public online. Did the deputy give you a sworn statement? Did he give you his name, sign it with a badge number, the case no. number? There was, okay. there was nothing. They're not doing this anything. Was, this was the deputy that looked at me and told me to shut the hell up that I was being emotional. So this is when I okay. started calling this five-letter agency who does alerts and talked with a caseworker. And I says, I need for you to give me some assistance in this because this is what's happening. I says, I am begging this guy. I am emotional. This is traumatizing my no. children This is for no reason. Like, I need help with this. And I was told repeatedly that they do not do anything, that, that what they do is that they, call, they have to call the parents or whomever, and that's how they get involved. Now, if they get a police report, and I beg them to call with me, to talk to the police with me, to let the police know this. Like, you know that they have a working relationship together already. They, I mean, this is, this is not something new to them. And okay, the way they, they refuse me, to get involved. Let me tell you how it works. Okay, you'll go into police department. You'll say, I want to file a sworn statement. You have to have evidence. And what you're going to do is you take that sworn statement, you, you put in the facts, the laws and statutes that were violated, and you say, see, see attachment of evidence to support probable cause of kidnapping, okay? Then at that point, the deputy will review everything. He's supposed to sign off on it, give you a case number, and then it goes to the uh, FBI uh, department, the detectives over there, special crimes unit. 
wouldn't it be great if that fine letter agency were educated in that and they could tell people that? That's what they should be doing. If they can't get involved, they should be well, giving parents for people that information. That's why we go to Mar- on Marty's show, me and Betty, to tell people what to do so they can protect their families. And you, and yeah. you do have to cry, but there's no guarantee that if you go through that process that the police will do anything, but you still have to try it. And when yeah. you, before yeah. you ever leave the substation, always, always say, okay, after the deputy files the, the report, you ask for a certified copy. It's one to three dollars. You take that, and that proves that you did submit it to local law enforcement. And then you take it to a higher level in the FBI. But that's a different show. We'll do it a different day because it's a different process. I have to teach you what you have to do uh, to to get FBI to get involved in your case. Yeah, and right now I'm not even able to get the sheriff to respond to me in the state of Florida. And I actually contacted them as well when it initially happened, and I got the same response. I got the same response from DeSantis' office, from Ashley Moody's office, from the sheriff's department, the police department. Now, from the sheriff's department, I actually had one deputy whom I spoke with who said he understood that and that it happens a lot, and in fact, it even happened to him. So he was understanding of it, but he just says it basically depends on the deputy or whomever you get. Because I have one deputy who laughs about it and has, has laughed at me twice now because I called. Now, I hadn't, hadn't even heard from my daughter when she was uh, kidnapped that was 17. To this day, I still haven't heard from her. No talking, no texting, no emailing, no nothing. There's no correspondence at all, even though I message this child every single day, sometimes a couple of times a day on email and text telling her I love her and I miss her and to please call me and if she's afraid, you know, talk with someone that she can trust there and and tell them what's going on. They have to do that to isolate the child, to brainwash a child and say, your mother doesn't care, look, she's abandoned you, you haven't seen this child. Uh, you, you haven't them. seen her in years. That's one of their tactics moves to brainwash a child, to c- control the child, to obey their demands. Yes, yes, exactly. And it's a splitting. I know that it's a splitting and that it's the, what is the, uh, the terrorists, you know, that do the, um, what is it called, uh, you know, where they brainwash the child to do that. There's a, you know, there's a term for it. But I mean, I think about this for a minute. Human sex trafficking, what do they do to the victim? They isolate Absolutely. the victim. So uh, they are human sex trafficking, these children and elderly through DCF. And, you know, in every case that have, has contacted our office, they have the same MO. So yes. we know what you're going through, and we really uh, – our heart reaches out to you, Paris, and we'll do everything we can oh, to you. help you. Thank you. I appreciate you guys so much. And, you know, it's it's very hard and it's, it's uh, gosh, it's so difficult because what happens is what I've observed also is it was difficult enough going through the system, knowing a lot of the chain of command to go through and getting, just feeling like I'm getting the runaround. Like, you know, they, they acknowledge what I'm saying. They have no problem acknowledging what I'm saying. But they don't follow through with anything. It's like a giant referral service to another referral in, in their system. You know, and never, they never even help with it. The reason that is, 
if they get by with that because they could say, well, you didn't petition and you didn't write in your petition to invoke certain statutes. And that's why I'm trying to emphasize tonight, you have a great case. It's just you did not invoke certain statutes. Because an attorney general has to have a certain statute invoked for her to get involved in the investigation. And the FBI, you have to submit a prosecution memorandum to the FBI. Uh, It's called a a prosecution memorandum pre-filed indictment. Uh, mm-hmm. And you got to have it notarized, and then you have to have attached to that requesting the attorney general invoke their statutes. Well, I'll tell you that tomorrow, the next day, if you're interested in doing this letter to attorney general for her to um, to, to approve the investigation. The certain steps. If you miss these steps, they don't have to do anything to assist you. Yeah, exactly. They just blown me off. And it's been like the deputies. You know, when I've called, I've had to do well checks on my children. Granted, I get to talk to our disabled daughter um, a couple of times a week. But, I mean, and that's not even talking anymore. In fact, I'm not even sure she's with her dad anymore. Nobody tells me where she's at, what she's doing, or anything. I, I have no idea where she's even at. And so my, but my oldest daughter, um, you know, I, I said I have to call the sheriff's department and do a welfare check just to know that she's okay. That's heart-wrenching to any parent. You know, it's heart-wrenching to a mother. Yes, it it's is. heart-wrenching to parents that that happens. But then to get a closed system when we have so many tax dollars that are going into the system that are paying these people, you know, as representatives of the state to keep peace and to – and to, you know, to follow through with legislators yeah. and laws and different things. I've noticed laws that, you know, things like even in the Department of Justice. I, <laughs> I was looking at statutes starting there where I said that I had been abandoned and deserted and everybody agreed with me. And I said, what do I do about it? You know, like this is, this is a big thing. Like, this, like I couldn't get anybody to pay attention about my daughters, which – it was just crazy to me. They were guys like I saw everybody that I went to. I felt like I was gaslit. I felt like it was nothing but gaslighting. And these, this is the domestic. This is why I have such an issue with so many organizations because I have told my story so many times. I'm very public with my story. I haven't told everything because clearly, I don't want everything known because one day it's going to come out in the open, but it's going to come out in the court open where somebody will hear me and I don't want it to be public because people should also know (laughs) that when you disclose things like this and you're open and you tell everything these people are building a defense against you and this is why you get nowhere because they build a defense yes it's not good to tell everything it's you know tell Tell things that people will relate to and understand and say, oh, my God. Like, I've had so many people say, I'm so glad to hear you say that, you know, or I'm sorry we're meeting under these circumstances, but you've given me courage to tell my story now and know that it's going to be okay. And I says, well, of course it's going to be okay. I mean, I don't go out defaming people. I don't go out and slander people. But in the same respect, this is not right. But we all, we all have to stand together. And we need to stand together as advocates, too, because there are a lot of advocates that we're all divided. Everybody's so divided because they want to make, they want to stick on one little point or two little points so that they can get justification or so that they can get recognition for that. 
the, the thing is, is that unless we all come together with a common good and stick on one or two things together, we are a much larger force in that manner to do that instead of nitpicking all this little crap that doesn't matter. Because we have a bunch of little crap out there now. It's like earmarks and, and statues. It's a lot of crap that doesn't matter. But the real thing is, is that we're looking at every man, woman, and child, no matter the age, being in bondage and slavery. We're indentured slaves, and we're in a system of bondage. And until we can recognize that and how it's being done, like, the, the whole system traffics, and when you see, see Paris, it, you're blown away. See, Paris, USA Guardianship Task Force, our mission is to abolish guardianship because we believe that no man, woman, or child should be owned for their assets by the state. And that is what we're working to abolish because they're creating these Senate bills to take more rights, civil rights, human rights away from you. And we're yeah. trying to, uh, you know, Go Marty shows, try to point out facts to the public so people can start doing their own research that we are telling you the truth and to please do your own research to, you know, uh, to verify this, to protect your own family. And like you said, if we don't unite and start working together as a unit, we will not have a country in the next two years because if you look, it's very scary, Paris. These Senate bills are coming out of woodwork, and, and it states that the, 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 the government does well, it's going to create a law where you cannot sue them, even if they kill you intentionally. If you were to yes. read some of these Senate bills I could send you, yes. it would wake you up. And, and okay, girls, we've got, we've got 30 seconds left um, oh, boy. before we go off here. Peggy, can you come back next Tuesday night? Yes, we can. All right, I'm going to schedule you for next Tuesday night. We'll pick this conversation up then. Uh, thank you, everyone who tuned in. We had a huge audience, thanks to you. And we will be back. I'm not sure when, but we'll be back. Uh, everybody, thank you so much. Peggy, Betty, Paris, this was an excellent, excellent interview. Thank you so much. Thank and good you. night, everyone. Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you all. Good night. Bye-bye. Thank you.